Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Clearly, democracy is not working for a very large number of Americans, and that feeds into the disenchantment and disaffection that we're seeing on a national level. Well, three long weeks until the culmination of the most surreal, divisive, and forgettable presidential election in memory. I mean, in olden days, a glimpse of stocking was... I mean, it's not even like that anymore. Now it's NC-17 invective anywhere, 24-7, on the endless cable news cycle. Dog whistles have suddenly become bullhorns. Racism, misogyny, out in the open. How will history books quote the Trump tapes? How, pray tell, did we get here, America? And what in the world awaits us on the other end? The Economist magazine tackles these very questions in this week's iconic cover, The Debasing of American Politics, our show for the hour. Full disclosure, stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from D.C. is James Astill, The Economist's esteemed Washington correspondent, editor of the impressive package this week. It's quite iconic. You have to look at that cover image, The Debasing of American Politics. Thank you, sir. My pleasure to join you. And here in studio with me, a regular on the show, Helene Spivak. She's now executive director of the VCU Brand Center. She's a veteran ad woman. And in fact, she worked on Bush 88. If you can remember, that campaign was not exactly remembered for its civility, but it pales in comparison to Trump 16. How are you, madam? <laughs> Very good to be here again, Robin. <laughs> Thanks. Um, James, I want to get to really one existential question I have whenever I look at the entire phenomenon that is Trump 16. The Republican Party writ large, has had eight years to see the bout Obama and to prepare for uh, the Hillary Clinton candidacy of, of 2016. And all that put in together with the financial crisis, with the Great Recession, with the overhang that still persists, even though we're told unemployment is back to its natural rate, the best and worst they could come up with was Donald Trump. Well, it, of course, they, if it depends who, who, who they... Um, yeah, who are, is they? I mean, Start but, with that they. But if, it, but it, but um, I think your 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 statement really is addressed to the the leadership of the party, those people who, uh, some of whom sort of had a, a great introspective moment after the the great Mitt Romney defeat. Suddenly, we know we we can't do this with white voters anymore. Clearly, we need to to look to expand our appeal to other parts of the electorate. And of course, they focused famously on the Hispanic vote, which to some extent drove 
uh, Marco Rubio and other Republicans' uh, interest in immigration reform. So that was that would have been an entirely different Republican Party, Republican offer to voters in this electoral cycle. That didn't happen. But I think that those Republicans who thought that um, they recognized, actually, that they needed to expand their appeal still would never have imagined that things could go so completely off the rail as they have, still thought that um, a sort of ameliorative, reassuring, mainstream, conservative solution to some of the problems, especially economic problems that Americans face today, would be their offer to the electorate. Um, Trump has blindsided everybody. He's he's uh, he, he came, you know, um, right out of the kind of the rear view um, blind spot. Nobody anticipated the extraordinary success of his populism. And I don't think we really have models in Western Europe. I'm always harping on um, similarities between America and other Western democracies in this election. But we don't really have an example quite so extravagant as this one. I'm going to blame it on the Kardashians and Americans' love of the sensational. And I I do believe those that uh, are saying that it's the press's fault. All he has to do is say something outrageous, and we keep him in the news 24 hours a day. And after a while, he becomes part of our reality. I've never seen a worse mess than the uh, first Republican debates. Uh, They were... um, They were... They were hockey games. They were just a bunch of people fighting each other. And again, I do think the press has a lot to do with uh, pushing him forward. But that was, you know, that was gravy for CNN. Uh, those were ratings blockbusters. I mean, they who in the heck needs all this, these primary debates with 10 people on stage? But when you have the likes of uh, Trump, a reality star, a, a person who's always been larger than life, household name for three decades, hurling uh, invective and mud at an establishment figure, scion like Jeb Bush, uh, you know, there was there was almost like a, an inherent schadenfreude in watching that. Like, you never get to see this, much less on a national stage, James. I think I think that um, uh, you're both right, that the, that the enormous exposure that Trump had right from the get-go in the Republican primaries and the, the sort of, you know, refiguring of politics as mud-wrestling entertainment have absolutely um, helped drive this phenomenon, helped drive his success. I do think, and this is something that our cover package this week was was trying to to get at, that there aren't easy uh, explanations for what appears to be a moral failure on a mass level here. Republican voters who support Trump are signing up to, or at least acquiescing to, the most vile, reprehensible statements that any mainstream political candidate has made in in America, certainly for a very long time. So I think that, yes, the press, especially uh, uh, TV um, broadcasters, played a big role in this. I think that the, uh, the sort of boulderization of American politics um, as entertainment, as mudslinging, uh, uh, has some some sort of a, a role in the explanation for this, and I think actually that um, Helen, you you talked about reality TV, that the the Kardashians earlier, on. and I think that the element of Trump um, Trump's candidacy that is sort of 
part real, part reality TV, and there's a sort of there's a sort of a, a little bit of an ambiguity there. Is also an interesting part of that. I think that people have a sort of plausible plausible deniability in supporting Trump's sort of nastier statements because maybe he didn't really mean it anyway. Because he's sort of you know he's a sort of he's a reality TV star. You know he probably means well. It's just part of the act, isn't it? I think that's all there too. But in the end. These various ingredients have brought millions of American voters to a point where they're they're signing up to something that is absolutely disgusting and reprehensible. And I don't think we should lose sight of of quite how severe that is as a judgment, I think, on morality in American politics today. James, I just want to get to the kind of the institutional inception of something like this. I mean, um, you would theoretically have a CEO of the Republican Party, if it's Reince Priebus or uh, a Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, even though he, he, he comes from the perspective of having lost the number two position in 2012 and he was chastened. But there were whispers that he would be the torchbearer, the standard bearer for the future. And in fact, they twisted his arm when the party was in crisis to come back and, and be Speaker of the House. Aren't there safeguards in place to prevent an insurgency like this? I'm talking kind of cynically inside baseball. We saw it with the Democratic Party and Debbie Wasserman Schultz's emails about Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, after all, was an independent before uh, the huge 2016 run and the insurgency that almost derailed Hillary Clinton. There were ways of kind of snuffing that out. And you would yeah. think similarly there would be ways in the primary process or uh, the RNC or whoever's there, the, 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 the party elders, to kind of snuff out the, the incipient uh, insurgency that Trump represented just a year and change ago. Well, I think, um, you know, uh, it, it's an interesting thought experiment to wonder what they might have done if they had taken a view as they should have done in the first, you know, six months of last year, that this was a nine months, perhaps we should say, of last year, that, you know, that this was serious, that Trump could go all the way and that Trump was really very bad news indeed for the Republican Party, for its brand, for its standing in American politics. They didn't take that view because they didn't take his candidacy seriously. And they assumed, as indeed many of us did, that it would fizzle. Um, you know, he, 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 he didn't get above 40 percent of the Republican vote until the, the last stretch of the, the primaries. It looked as if he was benefiting from a crowded field and that, you know, in the end, his candidacy just wasn't serious enough for Republican voters to, to support. And I think that was that was the view of many pundits like myself. It was the view of uh, the leadership of the Republican Party. And so they didn't they didn't think about what they would have to do to stop Trump. Um, that well, said, you know, it may be that they couldn't have done very much anyway, because what we found out was the party doesn't decide. It's the voters who do. Well, as a, an American who was in uh, Europe this past summer when uh, Brexit happened, uh, which made every American, or at least every American that I feel thinks mm. my way, that, oh, if it happened there, if if the vote could have gotten away like it did there, uh, Trump could be elected. That's what frightened most of us. And I think that it would be very difficult to have somebody um, marshal uh, Trump. I think he, he doesn't listen to his own advisors. And I think that's what's made him attractive to a lot of people in, in that he threw out the rules. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely right. I mean, just to, 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 to think what they could have done to marshal the Republican field, they, the burghers of the Republican Party, mm -hmm. to marshal the, the primary field um, to Trump's disadvantage. I mean, they would have had to have prevailed upon some of the uh, some of the other candidates to attack him or 
perhaps to to stop attacking each other to sort of focus the uh, the debate you know um, at a higher level and uh, in a way that you know shut Trump out somewhat but that gets though, know, that gets to the inchoate cynicism or hypocrisy of this James and that the GOP leadership I go back to Romney in 2012 he wanted it both ways right he got the endorsement of a Donald Trump when that dog whistle mattered and you had mm. Donald Trump as the fringe as the uh, you know the, the the representative of the birther movement but when Romney had nothing to lose i.e. was not running in 2016 he came out and said that this guy's a charlatan right but John McCain didn't say that at the outset various Republicans who realized that their own hides were on the line uh, did not step forward, maybe with the exception, like you pointed out in your essay, of, of Ben Sass, a, a senator from Nebraska. Sure. Everybody wanted it both ways. They promised that the primaries that, listen, in the end, I'm going to support my party's nominee. And I think that speaks to the untenability of whatever grand union the GOP, call it the legacy GOP, the transmogrifying GOP, has, that you have to keep everybody uh, beneath this kind of uncomfortable big tent in order to have a hope of, of putting a guy in the White House. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you, you know, you, you ended that um, uh, almost too kindly to the GOP. I, I think it was rank cynicism rather than uh, a sense of tribal loyalty that um, uh, led, you know, highly principled, admirable politicians like John McCain to effectively sign up to the Trump project, which they never should have done. And they should always have known that, you know, that way embarrassment and humiliation lay but but nonetheless they went along with it and i, I and i think that probably we could we could look a little bit further back to the uh, extent to which republican parties have allowed this this pernicious and mendacious sort of right wing conspiracy theorizing fringe to be part of their of their mainstream politics. Well, let's take let's take that back to Helene. You you mentioned 1988 and you worked on that campaign. Ironically enough, James, it was on, on the day I believe on the day that Donald Trump locked up the nomination this summer was the very day that Roger Ailes lost his job at Fox News when he was sacked. And I think that that'll be looked back upon as a kind of a defining moment in the in the history of the conservative movement in this country or or the regeneration of the Republican Party. Helene, you were tapped in your experience on Madison Avenue to help the Republican party in 88 and what they were doing with with dog whistles and willie horton and whatnot was even making you squeamish but at least um tell, tell us about it at least the willie horton work which was done uh, i i worked on the uh, on the work that went in between when you were allowed to do the political advertising for the candidate and we were doing something for the republicans in the republican national uh, convention so i worked there but i was present for all of the controversy and uh, the thing with Willie Horton is at least the negativity was done in the communications. It wasn't the, uh, the candidates slinging mud at each other. They had others sling mud for them. Uh, unfortunately, Dukakis, um, the second he opened up his mouth in front of uh, Bernie Shaw. And, of CNN. Of C yeah, of CNN. Uh, Bernie asked a fair question about... Uh, rape. Yeah, about rape. And he used, his, he used Dukakis' wife as the example. What if it were your wife that were raped by an early um, release prisoner sure. and instead of saying how dare you say that instead of you know horror he said well i absolutely bernie would in the most emotionless way and i i feel he lost the election at that point mm -hmm. but then they came up with these really hard-hitting uh, below the belt half true half truths uh, about dukakis and his and his reign in, in boston and it's very similar to um you have to look at who uh, trump's one of trump's mentors was according to something i read this morning it was roy cohen Roy Cohen represented um, Trump and his father 
uh, during uh, allegations that they would not let African-Americans move and into Roy their Cohn properties. And Roy Cohn was an acolyte of Senator McCarthy. Right. Uh, he would always <laughs> This be, goes back a long way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's the same kind of uh, dirty um, denial of the truth. And Roy Cohn's advice was, if somebody hits you, hit them back five times as hard and lie, lie, lie until they believe you. I think that about sums up, you know, what we're in the midst of Trump's now. method, yeah, sure. Yeah. And then, James, when you turn it around now, I'm sure you read this John Meacham uh, essay in the New York Times. Uh, it was posted yesterday. It's been emailed around everywhere. Almost nostalgia for the civility that was Bush 41. Um, uh, it's called the uh, the grace, nostalgia for the grace of Bush 41. And it's amazing to think back that the things that kind of made us blush about the 88 campaign, I mean, Willie Horton's darkened face, uh, to bring out those dog whistles of, of, you know, it used to be called law and order under Nixon, the law and order policy. Uh, it was like once removed from outright racism and Jim Crow and segregation. Now at Trump rallies, you're just seeing that out in the open. Uh, you're seeing... I mean, the most euphemistic thing out there about the right wing is the alt-right. And David Duke, the ex-Klansman, outright blowing kisses to Donald Trump on Twitter. And it's a bizarre world because Donald Trump's daughter converted to Judaism is married to a uh, an Orthodox Jew. You would never think that uh, the far right of the party, the ones that the Southern Poverty Law Center addresses, would find a hero, a great white hope in an Upper East Side limousine liberal kind of landlord from the 1980s. None of it makes sense. No, it doesn't. But he he he, uh, he does speak their language. And I think that the uh, the failure um, to to disavow David Duke's support was a was a really big moment in the in the primaries. And it, it was clearly encouraging to the, the alt-right so-called. And, you know, perhaps even there was a there was more of a strategic purpose to that than we knew at the time. If if the reports and we've read some more this morning of of uh, uh, Trump or those around him thinking about setting up some sort of uh, media operation after the election is out the way are are to be believed. Well, that's really I, I think one of the most cynical reads I have is that this was something that had the ultimate consolation prize to begin with. Maybe as he went down that escalator and announced his candidacy, he never thought he could be the first kind of businessman to receive a major party's nomination. And if it all blew up in his face, especially as Roger Ailes was remaindered, he could always come out and, and, and put out the, the right right wing answer to Fox News. I mean, there's no there's no real lose for him, is there? Well, what's the reputation worth? I mean, he um, uh, he I think uh, uh we have to we have we have to see. I mean, there, you know, there, there there is some reporting on the hit to his his brands. Uh, yeah, we saw Los this, Los Angeles Dodgers first baseman Adrian Gonzalez uh, as the team was the National League Championship Series in Chicago refused to stay at a Trump property. Um, he's a Mexican American, and you you wonder how the brand or what's left of the brand. I mean, it's been licensed a thousand times over and sure. through several bankruptcies, but. Um, as a as a kind of a news brand up there with Breitbart, it could retain some pungency. I mean, after all, James Helene, he is polling somewhere close to forty percent. No, he's going to get sixty million votes. That's an audience, right? I mean, it's uh, he, he has been astonishingly, uh, brilliantly, shamefully successful in this election, and he will find opportunities in that, no doubt. I think that we shouldn't again lose sight of how infamous that success is and how history is likely to 
to look back on it. What makes me so sad is he is so shamefully shameless or unshamedly shameless. Uh, the worse uh, the worse he speaks about anything, the more his numbers rise. Uh, all of the, well, well, is that true? Is that true? It, it uh, well after Mexico, after saying that Mexicans were rapists, I thought you know how could he possibly exist? Survive this? Survive this? And he survives it after calling for people to you know carry. Uh, to have Hillary's um, Secret Service not carry guns, let's see what that'll ha- you know. Let's see what'll happen to her. Uh, you know, calling for a you know a hit basically on Hillary Clinton, after saying that he would put something in place to have her uh, put in jail, he says things and gets away with things that no, no other. It's, it's it's astonishing. But if if you go back to that um, that GOP uh, uh, post mortem after Mitt Romney's defeat uh, that that you know that basic analysis that the Republican Party needs to broaden its appeal right now looking at the polls which may be wrong they may change we don't know but right now it looks to be truer than ever um, Trump um, disgracefully has has got himself to about 40 percent of of the vote with that kind of bile and venom but he's finding it extraordinarily difficult to to get up to the sort of 46, 48% mark that could give him a chance of winning the election. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to James Astle. He is The Economist Washington correspondent. He has this week's big cover package, The Debasing of American Politics. It is certainly iconic. Take a look at it. I can't quite describe it. And here with me in studio is Helene Spivak. She is executive director of VCU Brand Center, also a veteran ad woman who uh, actually worked on uh, the Bush and RNC's 1988 campaign. Um, there is something you wrote, James, that really resounded with me. Um, let me just bring out the cleanest part of the Trump tapes from Access Hollywood or whatever it was when he described his attempt to sleep with the television presenter. I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there. Uh, the, the the person, the interview who was with was Billy Bush, who has arguably had a bigger impact on the election than his cousin Jeb, who many Republicans expected to win it. Uh, Then he spots an unattractive television actor awaiting Mr. Trump. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start ticking her. Uh, Helene mentioned to me, you know, off mic here, isn't it amazing that Billy Bush is going to lose his job at NBC and he's currently in negotiations maybe for a $10 million severance? But there's no institutional safeguard like a chief marketing officer or chief reputation officer atop whatever the RNC, the big elephant, has become to kind of – you know, censure or sanction Donald Trump. Honestly, what what do you think? I think Trump already has his audience. I think he's going to keep appealing to the um, to what Hillary uh, referred as. Unfortunately, she did it as a generalization. Not all of his followers are deplorables, but he certainly has a very specific uh, target, a very specific sweet spot. Um, which is why I've never been as scared as, uh, of an election than since I was a kid. When I went to bed thinking if Barry Goldwater gets elected, we're all going to die. And uh, it's the first time in a very long time I have a massive fright about a politician who could still conceivably be voted in. And I'm talking about Trump. Those numbers that you just mentioned, James, they, they frighten me. Mm, mm. No, no, it's it's. Those numbers look like uh, they are a potential deal breaker for Trump, but it's far, far, far too close, given, as you say, the risk that a Trump presidency would 
represent. James, I don't believe uh, I've ever seen mention of Utah in my lifetime as a swing state. I mean, it's the <laughs> most reliably red state. I believe it's it's voted for every Republican candidate since the year 1208. Um, I just don't see how that happens. And it's an indication. I think you're talking about a, a predominantly Mormon state and the electorate, uh, you know, the former governor and Mitt Romney comes out and, and outright condemns. Uh, Donald Trump and everything that he represents and the and the sheer, I think, pornography of his comments and his reputation repels many. I wonder why that doesn't carry to the traditional Bible Belt. I wonder why that isn't a bigger issue with Southern Baptists. Uh, um, you know, leaders in the movement, are they just willing to hold their nose and, and hope that, you know, look at what he does, not what he says? Well, not all of them. Um, not all of them. There are... Um there is a growing movement of especially young evangelical pastors that don't want any part of this anymore. But yeah, we've we've seen some of the famous names of the evangelical movement um, signing up um, with Trump pretty early on, uh, speaking for him at the convention. And uh, they they make arguments based on um, pure expediency, really, that they, they, they're prepared to put up with association with all of this immoral disgusting uh, language and record that surrounds his candidacy for, um, you know, a belief, which may well prove to be erroneous anyway, that he would pick the Supreme Court judges that they, it's they that, want. So it's that reductionist. It just boils down to he's less worse for us than Hillary. Hold your nose as much as you have to? I think, one, that. There's a genuine calculation there. And, and second, they have been... Um, uh, denigrating Hillary and uh, what they consider to be the liberal part of the Democratic Party that surrounds her for so long that it's just uh, it, it's too much of a step change for them to say that well you know even though you know she's evil and perhaps will perhaps she's she's the lesser of the two evils after all I think there's a you know tremendous failure of imagination early on and I and you know I don't I, I don't want this to be too much of a conversation in the rearview mirror but then why didn't a John Kasich or, or a Marco Rubio. I mean, I was amazed with which the, the ferocity with which he dispatched all these candidates. A person like a John Kasich, I always saw in the pro forma polling, would handily beat Hillary Clinton. And you would think there'd be someone in the party that says, you know, let's not rush to the right wing this early. Let's kind of get to the center earlier. She's highly beatable. She's probably the second least popular candidate in history to Trump. You talk about expediency's sake. I mean, John Kasich and the others would appoint likable Supreme Court nominees. Again, I understand that this is an unwieldy collection of people coming under a big tent. And we saw that also with Hillary and the Bernie people and the the never Hillary's and, and you know, feeling the burn. Why did that never come to the fore? I know I'm, I'm tongue tied in asking this because I'm still blindsided by it. The, Robin, what, why, why did the Republican leadership not try to stage manage the primaries earlier on? How do you that, do that, though? You said the yeah, vote will ultimately out. The vote I think, will out. You know, they, they, spent, they spent months and months celebrating the great array of talent that was uh, on offer to Republican primary voters. And, of course, there were, you know, an historic number of... of but do you remember Do you remember when Ted uh, Cruz was candidates. the right wing, when Ted Cruz was the unthinkable, uh, uh, you know, un non-negotiable right winger who was the thorn in the party's side... I mean, it's unbelievable to me how quickly this race to the right. I watched all of them, and I think the real issue is that they did not know how to fight him. They were still working on, to some degree, gentlemen's rules. 
and Trump wasn't. And I think he just rode over them because they didn't fight the same way. I don't think there was any question of them, as I say, stage managing or try to fix that the primary field. There were a number of, of factors that supported the Trump candidacy, it, it now appears in retrospect. And the, the vote-splitting effect of Kasich and, uh, and, and Rubio and Cruz and even Bush to a degree in, uh, in, in New Hampshire um, certainly gave him a lift that he might not otherwise have had. But one, you know, there is no, there is no prime mover who can orchestrate a primary field um, had the Republican leadership wanted to do that. Um, uh, and secondly, you know, Trump was pretty much the leader of the pack, all of those other factors notwithstanding, from the get-go. So perhaps even if they had been able to shuffle the pack, and I don't think they could have done probably, and it would have been profoundly undemocratic for them to have been seen doing so, they probably couldn't have done much about it anyway. James, I, I I do want to kind of switch the conversation to the Hillary camp right now. And suppose, I mean, there's there are odds right now, eight and a half out of 10 chance that she wins. I think it was updated this morning by the upshot. You yeah. pegged it, I think, at 87% in your essay. Suppose in a month from now, she inherits this. And even after it's contested and they say it's illegitimate, what in the world will she inherit? I know a lot of it's dependent on maybe the Senate goes the other way. Is there a possibility of a landslide? But if she just inherits the status quo with a highly polarized morning after situation where a good 35 to 40 percent of the electorate thought not highly enough of her to go for a person that threatened to put her in jail, what exactly is that? Well, it's it's the makings of, of, of deadlock, bitterness, slander and a mess and probably an impeachment chucked in there, too. So it's a it, it's a pretty um, it's a it's a pretty dismal outlook. But. But I don't think that the the 35%, 40% of the electorate that hates Hillary and thinks that perhaps her her victory was illegitimate would be the problem. The problem would be if we immediately go from this unhappy uh, and bitterly dividing election to renewed deadlock in Washington. So so the Senate uh, races will be absolutely critical here. I mean, it's you know if if the Republicans keep both houses, it's and we're straight into you know, uh, arguments about whether uh, Republicans in the Senate would even allow uh, Hillary Clinton, a president Hillary Clinton, her, you know, her, her choices for her cabinet appointments, let alone uh, her Supreme Court nomination, then uh, her presidency will be, if not doomed. Well, well walk, walk me through that. <laughs> I'm not playing, I'm start. not, I'm not playing Corey. If you take me back to eighth grade civics, I mean, when there is an impasse like that, checks and balances just grind to a halt, right? If you you, what happens? You you have a, suddenly a court to fill. You have uh, justices out there. Obama has been stymied, certainly. Sure. Uh, and before that, Bush, after two thousand six, had his problems with the Democratic Senate and House. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what are the checks and balances? Who can prevail? Who can? I mean, do do you see another snapback reaction in the twenty eighteen election? Or 2020. I, I just don't understand the alternatives. I don't understand what happens when uh, intransigence kind of becomes the order of the day. Well, I, I, th I think that, you know, uh, as you, you point to the precedents, and intransigence in, in Washington has become the order of the day since uh, the Democrats lost control of Congress in 2010. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of, of uh, lawmaking 
going on. And it is perfectly imaginable that we could see more of that, four more years of that, um, uh, or certainly two years of that, and then we'll have a... And you see the br- the brinksmanship of, of government shutting down and the fiscal cliff and then suddenly markets forcing the hand, right? If yeah. the Dow falls 800 points, oh, we come to a, you know, a stopgap solution. I, I just don't understand how long a democracy can function on these half measures. Well, this is a robust democracy after all. Um, and the, the, the machinery, machinery of state in America is far less broken than it seems to me many voters think it is and certainly their politicians tell them that it is america keeps moving you know um the bureaucracy still functions uh, justice is is dished out and and seen to be dished out so the country is not going to collapse but we will see more of this terrible uh, federal government failure um that has done so much to poison the electorate against the government in this terrible vicious circle that produces Trumpian politics, and perhaps even, God knows, a President Trump. You mentioned impeachment. Do you think that Hillary, uh, if she gets in, will be allowed to fulfill the first four years? Do you think there's going to be issues immediately? I think it really depends. It depends on what happens in the congressional races. Um, and secondly, which is harder even to, to, to second guess, it depends on what lessons the Republican Party is prepared to learn from uh, it's uh, it's defeat if that's what has trans- transpired, and that I think will just for starters depend on the scale of of the defeat. If Trump loses by a landslide, um, it will be much easier for mainstream Republican leaders to try to sort of cut out the cancer of his candidacy and move the party forwards than if he's lost by a much narrower margin. And you know the the, the the, the non- nonsensical idea that he was somehow robbed, that the election uh, is illeg- was Ill- illegitimate, is allowed to prevail. And perhaps, who knows, if, if that were to happen, perhaps even Trump himself would still be a political figure promising a, a renewed run. All, all, all of that would make it much, much harder for the Republican Party to really think about where things went wrong and move on and try to expand its appeal. Mm. And, you know, killing a presidency, a, 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 a second Clinton presidency from the get-go would not, I would suggest, help it to move on and try to refigure where it stands with the electorate. James Astle, uh, I don't understand why this environment where you had two decidedly unpopular candidates polling nationally, why it didn't uh, invite a more compelling and pungent third-party candidate. I mean, we thought maybe that would have been there with with Gary Johnson and, and Bill Weld, but you've seen Johnson's many slip-ups with his Aleppo moment or not being able to name a single living foreign leader. Uh, there's, I, I believe Jill Stein is her name, is a kind of the other alternative to that, and there's a a, a Mormon candidate maybe rounding out the, the names at, at 1%. You would think that someone like a Ross Perot could come into an event like this, like he did in 1992, and took something like 18 or 19% of the vote in the wake of that big recession and the savings and loan crisis overhang. Why didn't anybody plan that out? I mean, I, I see more conversation committed to uh, a, a person like a Bernie Sanders did not want to seal uh, Hillary's fate and make sure Trump appears in office after the lessons of of Ralph Nader in 2000. I would think Ceteris Paribus, and of course Ceteris is not Paribus, that this would have been a prime election for a great third party candidate. Well, I think that's right. Um, 
and I think it's it's a matter of sort of historical coincidence that that didn't happen, that there was no Ross Perot figure. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Bernie Sanders. If he had decided to to run as an independent, uh, he'd be doing better than Gary Johnson right now. He'd be doing much better than Jill Stein right now. And and though, as you say, they are not going to be, you know, um, the most significant players in this election, they're still with Evan McMullen polling around 10% of the vote, 8-10% of the vote between them, which is, which is, in historical terms, a pretty large chunk of the electorate. Going back to Bernie Sanders, though, Bernie Sanders had no allegiance to the Democratic Party beforehand. He was an independent candidate from Vermont. And after what happened with uh, the internal emails being released that the Democratic Party elders had no love for him, uh, sure, it took knew, a tremendous yeah. amount of discipline for him to not say, screw it, I'm running as a third party guy. I think that you have to give the Democrats some credit for uh, binding Bernie in pretty pretty expertly just on the eve of the the Democratic National Convention when, as you suggest, he he might very well have, have decided to screw it and strike out on his own. We know that he felt bitterly aggrieved and he got people in his ear in the latter parts of the of the primary contest saying that he'd been hard done by, that he'd, Hillary's victory over him was not legitimate. So, so ha- had uh, there not been really quite an efficient peacemaking process, if also, I suppose it's fair to say, Hillary hadn't picked up a fair bit of, of the Sanders agenda uh, on um, uh, making a public college um, uh, free, affordable, etc., um, then uh, it might have it might have gone much worse for her with Bernie Sanders. As it was, he was well bound in. He himself, belatedly, I think many people thought, showed a good degree of magnanimity and responsibility for the the uh, the uh, progressive liberal cause in this election. And by the time he, the Democrats had got through what was an extremely well managed and successful convention, there was no question of of a of a Sanders revolt. So I think that that was probably rather good party management of a kind that, as you've as you've been remarking earlier, we haven't seen at all on the Republican side in this election. It seemed like uh, it was the first time I saw some passion happening in the election, and for for somebody that they felt represented something something good, they, he got the millennials behind him. There was a, there was actually something positive happening again. But I do understand the decision made. And, I, I, this is just the first election that I have ever heard the voting people who are not going to vote or saying I can't vote for either of them uh, or the ones that are going to vote for the third party, whether they want to or not. They just they they are going to vote because they're Americans and they will take that vote, but they won't put it for either candidate. And uh, it's it's in numbers or at least in opinions that I have never heard before. It's very dispiriting. James, uh, I'm wondering from the perspective of your cold eyes, and you've spent a lot of time overseas and and we're back and forth from London, there's something fundamentally wrong with our winner-takes-all system here in the United States. I saw this stat uh, last week. I think it was in a Vox visual. Because of the Electoral College, by dint of the peculiarities and the lopsidedness of of certain states, you could actually get something like 20 to 25 percent of the popular vote and win the presidency in this country just by concentrating it in certain states. And the only thing that I believe makes a candidacy like Trump's even viable is the fact that 
he can take for granted that Texas is not going to vote for a Democrat, that there's really very little proportionality in this system. Um, I, I wonder what you kind of make kind of from a meta level, stepping back from all this. It's it's tremendously inefficient, right, for us to violently swing from the left to the right and, and these bruising electoral battles and, and nothing getting done in between. It is indeed. And, and I think you could you could throw in the, the non-competitive non-competitiveness, sorry, of, of uh, your congressional, most congressional races. Um, the fact that, you know, the entire House of Representatives is is up for, for re-election uh, in November. But right now, people are talking about, you know, 24, 25 seats being potentially, um, you know, competitive. That That's an absurdity. Um, so clearly, democracy is, is not working for a, a very large number of of Americans, and that feeds into the the disenchantment and disaffection that we're seeing on a national level. Because of gerrymandering and redlining, you can kind of carve up, you can entrench your favorables as a as a congressman, chiefly from a self preservation perspective. And so, uh, where the mechanism would be, if people are unhappy, they can kind of throw you out with the top of the ticket. That's not actually likely to happen this time around. No, it's not. And and uh, uh, of course, all of that. Um, encourages it, 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 it both feeds off and encourages more of the extreme partisanship which going back to the earlier part of our discussion is is actually the main explanation for why trump is doing so well despite uh, the obscenities of of his campaign the, the main reason as we try to work out why so many americans are prepared to vote for this man is simply that he's a republican nominee and they'll support the, the republican nominee because any other course is unthinkable to them. You know, when my sources uh, in, in Congress take me off the record and they say, we're really worried about the cautionary tale of Congressman Eric Cantor, who after all was one of the most powerful Republicans mm. in the country two years ago. We're here in his district, right? It's unthinkable that this uh, professor from Randolph-Macon College, nobody gave him a second thought. And yet that insurgency just showed up. And everybody the day after was talking about how he was too establishment and he spent too much time in D.C. And he short shrifted the very valid uh, laments and concerns and, and complaints of Tea Party activists. And a lot of people, frankly, you speak to them and you look at the whites of their eyes, they feel like they didn't get anything coming out. They really got the short end of the stick coming out of 2008. The banks were capitalized. A Hillary Clinton goes and gives $250,000 speeches to Goldman Sachs. And, and Eric Cantor, even after he lost this, his consolation prize was a $12 million a year sinecure with an investment bank to help yeah. to help these companies get inversions abroad. You can almost understand the, um, the learned helplessness, the exasperation, even if they're not on board a hundred percent with the misogyny and the racism coded or otherwise, there is this undeniable appeal, James, in kind of unleashing this greased pig into Washington and kind of seeing what happens. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, uh, you're you're sadly right. The the sort of uh, rip it all up and start again um, impulse is very strong in this election. I think going going back to to the Cantor example um, that shows one. That politics, democratic politics, is much more dynamic than we suppose. Um, and Helene, you mentioned the Brexit vote a little earlier. That was another example where voters came shockingly to many to the cognoscenti. It turned out not to be the cognoscenti. <laughs> um, uh, to a surprising and the cognoscenti certainly thought wrong decision. Um, but um, 
in retrospect, there are, there, there are reasons that we can um, point to in both those examples. Cantor, you know, was the victim of a supercharged movement inside his own party, uh, which is a fairly small segment of the electorate to begin with. And uh, the Brexit vote was actually always uh, much closer than I think the headline writers had been letting on in the last weeks of the campaign. But what we're talking about now is an American general election and the stabilizers in the electorate, which is to say the diversity of the electorate, which Trump has not played to as well, uh, at all rather, with his divisive campaign, should, I think, uh, prevent that order of dynamism, if you like, or surprise in the, in the result. There just seems to be a lot more Americans that were hiding out since political correctness is now thrown out the window. And if you've heard, there was a, a reporter that went through one of Trump's rallies with a microphone and hearing what uh, what the uh, in that case, the, his general public were saying. I mean, I, I can't repeat any of it, but most mm. of it was full of full of hate. A lot of it was uh, bigotry. Um, uh, just looking at some of the leaders uh, like Putin, who would love to see Trump in office, is something that would have given me uh, cause to pause anyway. I mean, you look at the leaders behind him and it's people who want to be able to use him for their own purposes. Mm. I, I think everybody should go to a Trump rally because <laughs> I, um, uh, I, I speak as somebody who, who's been to a lot of Trump rallies. I think I've been to 12 or 13 Trump rallies in the last nine months. And uh, the the things that you hear there are appalling. And uh, Hillary Clinton made a terrible, terrible error in uh, appearing to write off half Donald Trump's supporters as deplorables. It was an idiotic thing to do, the most elementary political political mistake, which is... Uh, but truth be told, James, they're not going to they're not going to vote for her, right? At this point, it's it's not. About, I mean, they're not going to of... vote. They're not going <laughs> to vote for her. But uh, there is a question about how many of them will vote for him, I see. Um, uh, because. Turnout is something that the Democrats were always worried about because of the lack of enthusiasm for Hillary's candidacy. And if the Republicans could manage, you know, a really supercharged turnout from that rather narrow um, part of the principally white electorate that supports Trump, they always had it had a chance. It's very strange metaphorically. I think of like Hillary in terms of what Helene says, and Helene's students are overwhelmingly millennial you know, early 20-somethings, cord cutters. Uh, they were really on board with Bernie Sanders. Uh, you look at the Hillary candidacy and it's like you show up at a conference or a convention and they serve you, uh, you know, rubbery chicken or, or salmon with vegetables. It gets the job done, but you don't look forward to it. And Donald Trump, on the other hand, is not even surf and turf, but he's almost like this puffer fish that is like <laughs> <laughs> presented on a plate. It could be delicious, but it could kill you. It could be really noxious, but there's something attractive about it. And uh, just the, the binary nature of that just drives me nuts. And then you hear, yeah, again, you, you never know with counterfactuals if just the Democratic Party was able to come out there and say, look, don't indulge the kind of misogynistic catcalls and dog whistles. Run someone as, as plain and as milquetoast as Tim Kaine as your standard bearer, and he would handily beat a Donald Trump. Maybe there's something to be said for uh, this could be kind of the last stand for misogyny. People, many, many uneducated white voters out there, as you included in that uh, chart on your story, that had to countenance the first black presidency for eight years, that are now terrified of kind of losing the last thing they can hold on to, which is their perceived gender superiority. 
I know that's a loaded question, but this is a loaded presidential election, and I have to put it out there. Question, do, do, do I think this is the last stand for misogyny? In, I do wonder. It's a pretty big stand for misogyny. Um, whether it's the last one, uh, I rather doubt, given the vigor of... of uh, the sort of but it's not ironic to you that the first the first major presidential uh, nominee of, of, of any major party, the first female presidential candidate, um, runs up against the person who's thrice divorced, had this many children, openly cheated on his wives, right? Had this quote come out right now. It's it it defies credulity. I mean, you couldn't have screenplayed it better than this. No, you could, and and for that reason, it's perhaps not so much ironic as just deeply appropriate. The, mm. the the idea that the man standing between America and its first female president is, as you say, this multiply divorced, um, adulterous, um, misogynist um, man. Or, uh, you you surely seen that, James? If if Barack Obama <laughs> right stepped up to the mic in two thousand eight and was thrice divorced and cheated on his wife and fathered five children among three different women at least, right? And you saw anything like these quotes coming through, he'd be he'd be just booed out of D.C. rapidly. But the there's an enormous double standard, and especially when I think about the Ralph Reeds of the world holding their noses, and certainly this guy does not have a personal relationship with Christ, <laughs> but it's it's yeah. as reductionist as the Supreme Court anyway. It just no, gives the, me the an thing aneurysm. is the thing is that Donald Trump doesn't get embarrassed. You can't embarrass him. He will just turn around and and lie. And I don't think it's the last stand of misogyny. I think it's just another platform for misogyny. That's not going to go away that quickly. Mm. One last thought on, on, on that question. There, there, there is an irony in, I think, a sort of rather interesting catch-22 that Hillary finds herself in, in that at least until very recently, a large part of the, what you would expect to be a democratic um, vote base, uh, you know, millennial um, women, didn't feel the need to support a, a female presidential nominee per se because they didn't think that sexism was an issue they need mm. to worry about and they didn't need um, to to support uh, a woman candidate to express their feminism. And on the other side, you had what appeared to be, what appears to be increasingly, a, a supercharged, um, uh, especially white working class male um, vote, which is uh, rallying around Trump, at least partly because his opponent is a woman. So uh, I think that the Hillary candidacy was sort of falling between two stools on that. That that that's probably an out, you know an increasingly um, outdated analysis, but it certainly looked like that until a couple of weeks ago. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to James Astill. He is the Economist Washington correspondent, and here in studio with me is Helene Spivak, executive director of VCU's Brand Center. Uh, James, in the ten minutes or so that we have left, I'd like to focus on introspection, maybe with a, a sousant of, of hopefulness. Um, what happens the morning after? Suppose all the probabilities prevail, and right now the probabilities tell us a overwhelmingly a Hillary Clinton presidency, the Senate more or less kind of maybe with the exception of like four or five votes, stays Republican or is very lightly Democratic. The House stays with Republicans. Who is the Republican Party's chief introspective officer the morning after? Who is kind of the elder statesman to say, well, we got to, after this emergency conference call, we got to regroup. We got to have, I don't know, a blue ribbon panel telling us about how to, to mend fences with minorities after this horrific bit of rhetoric in 2016. I mean, walk me through that. Well, um, I think that that man would have to be Paul Ryan um, uh, insofar as we can we can game this scenario. 
And I think that it is possible to think of, it's not the popular analysis, but I think it's possible to think of a fairly upbeat, optimistic uh, scenario in relative terms. So let's say um, the Democrats have got the Senate, um, the Republicans have kept the House, um, Hillary Clinton is president, uh, having won um, by a, a clear margin. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no ambiguity about the result um, and the, the chuntering about um, uh, electoral fraud quickly dies down as a result of that. I think that in that uh, scenario, you would start to see a, a few encouraging signs. I think that Charles Schumer, um, Chuck Schumer, that is, um, uh, will be uh, uh, much better at working with uh, Republicans in the Senate um, than his predecessor. I think that Hillary Clinton um, will... Uh, have it very much at the front of her mind to get decent working relationships going with her former uh, colleagues, or with, at least with re- Republicans I mean, in the she Senate. Was, many she, of whom was were known as, she was known as a collegial person in the she Senate. She indeed. would attend Bible readings. I mean, people, Orrin Hatch spoke highly of her. Obviously, she gets great press from she Republicans gets, she, it's, it's crazy. She gets great press and great numbers when she's in office. When she's running, it's she gets pilloried left and right, and her, her non-favorables just skyrocket. So I, I think in, 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 that, in that scenario, she gets her appointments. They sail through the Senate. She, uh, uh, she, she gets her, appoint, her nominee to the Supreme Court bench. Ryan is, is uh, somehow empowered by the, the humiliating death of the Trumpian insurgency. Perhaps um, the Freedom Caucus haven't gained, as we think they may, um, in the House elections, to the extent that that that, that could happen, so Ryan is uh, is looking more more solid. Ryan um, drives a uh, a on the one hand, you know, a, a party introspection as you as you suggest the Republicans will need. Why did we lose this election? How can we avoid it happening again? But at the same time, realizes that uh, he will have to work with Democrats in the Senate and with Hillary Clinton presidency if he wants to improve the standing of his party, but also his own position. And then, of course, we start to think about what 2020 would mean for Ryan. We think that he may very well be thinking of of a presidential run himself at that time. He will not be the the caustic right-wing purist in that race. I think Ted Cruz um, would would immediately um, uh, fit that bill more than Ryan. So Ryan's, I submit... Trying to be optimistic, best chances of of building some momentum around himself would be as the man who fixed Washington. Um, he's been, he's been landed with this poison chalice of running House Republicans. It's a, it's an appalling thing to have taken on. He's been very badly beaten up in this election. He needs to change the narrative, and if he can be the man to take bold decisions for the national interest, whilst you know uh, keeping his party um, close around him. He might very well uh, think that, that was the best way to improve his his reputation heading towards uh, a run in 2020. So that that is an optimistic spin on what could happen after this election. I think that <laughs> there are a number of uh, there are a number of big assumptions there which may very well not come to fruition. But it's not it's not certain that things will be as bad as is generally expected. And Helene Spivak, veteran ad woman, suppose the RNC. 
uh, bereft of Roger Ailes and the late Lee Outwater, comes knocking again after 28 years and says, look, we should have listened to you. Um, you are a branding person. You know millennials. You know public sentiment. You know uh, statistical significance of where demographic trends are headed. Where do we start with a rebranding? Where do I even – what do we do that morning after, even if they put out feelers? Put all your partisan proclivities aside. What would be your advice to the chastened party the morning after? They have to get the population involved. They have to get the uh, – I think it, it should be almost a grassroots thing, getting people back in, in different neighborhoods and, and repairing what they did with all the races. I, I think they, they owe apologies to people. I think uh, they have to show how open they are, how open they are to opinion and how open they are to inclusion. And if they don't do that, they're still going to be that party that's for the, uh, the rich white. I think it's a very good point. Just, but just I'd like to hear more from you on it. But who, who, who do they go to in that scenario? Because you know, who you ask the question of will obviously determine the answer that you get. And if they go to Trump's followers and say, how, how do we make you happy? They'll, they, will, um, they will not open up um, the party. They will not broaden its its appeal. Don't they need to take the party to parts of America that are currently just not minded to vote red in any circumstance? Well, I think we're going to need a little time to calm the country down. I mean, there's a lot of passion behind uh, what, what Trump stirred up. And it's, I think it's going to take a while uh, to calm those voices. I don't think there's going to be the violence people are calling for. But I do think that they'll have to take a turn because they're going to feel very frustrated. Uh, and they're going to want a voice because they feel they had a voice. So um, I do feel that some of the people who um, caused some of this have to do a little bit of a turnaround and gather people together again. I think the Republicans have – it's two parties right now, and I think two parties are running for president and vice president, and that's Trump and Pence. Uh, I don't think they're the same kind of Republican. And I think they have to go back to a little bit of what you know they call the Lincoln Party mm. and, and make it into something that it, it represented at the beginning, which wasn't this kind of extreme. I think the pendulum has to swing a little bit back to the middle. As, as middle as you can get on the Republican side, a little bit more conservative. James, I still close us out. Is this going to be, I mean, for starters, before you uh, take it to your open-ended uh, comments, is this going to be looked back at as like a tantamount to a vote for Iraq in 2003, uh, kind of as a litmus test for future party elders one way or another? I think it, it can't fail to be seen as, uh, as an historic moment for America because um, there is such urgency to the very big questions that are being asked, you know, amid all of the the obscenities and the hullabaloo and the you know the terrible soap opera drama of this election, about an America that should be open to the world or closed to the world, about an America that sees itself as 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 having a responsibility to take a forward um, role in in global security. Um, to promote its own interests, but also um, security and the common good. Um, about America, an America that wants to be open to uh, to the enormous uh, demographic changes that are going on in, in in the electorate and in the society, and embrace them, um, or or a, a frankly white America that wants to to kick against that inevitable process of, of change. I mean. The, these are seismic forces and seismic questions that are being asked in this election, and it will not settle them, of course. But much of the mudslinging 
and the um, the bitterness of the invective in this election is because of those colossal colliding social pressures and economic pressures and changes, rather than just the divisive characters of the two candidates that we have. You were listening to James Astle. He is the Washington correspondent at The Economist, author of this week's extraordinary cover package, The Debasing of American Politics. It's so thoughtful and so well-reported. He's joined uh, by Helene Spivak, who is here in studio with me. She is executive director of the Brand Center. I am grateful to you both. Thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can catch us on NPR One, iTunes, ACAST, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all fine podcatchers everywhere. You want us on your air? Well, DM me at Twitter at FullDRadio. We are tripartisan, big tent, making radio great again. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Just silly gigolos So though I'm not a great romancer I know that I'm bound to answer When you 